Please take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12, if you would, please. Hebrews, chapter 12. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there, but we will uh, get there. Last Sunday morning, in a sermon entitled, Christians, Strangers and Aliens, Foreigns and Exiles, we took a look at the theme of the book of 1 Peter as found in chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, explaining last week how we as New Testament Christians are to be and to stand out visibly in everything we think, everything we do, and everything we say from the lost world around us. That is what the rest of the book of 1 Peter goes on to explain and to illustrate and to insist upon as again we covered last week. We discussed in that sermon how we should be as easily, eagerly, readily, and recognizably different from the lost world all around us as light is from darkness. As the pilgrims who landed in 1620 on this continent were from the natives that they found here. We should be that different from the world around us. We should be as different from the world around us as the old order Amish are here in our community from the white collar executives who work in Tulsa. And the reason why, as we went on to explain and as Peter goes on to explain in 1 Peter, is because we've been bought by and now belong to God. We have been bought by God, Peter explains in the first chapter, by the precious and priceless blood of his son, which we just celebrated as we gathered about this table as the scripture tells us to each week. Because we have been bought by that blood, we now have a totally different goal. This is why we're different. This is why we're strangers and aliens. We have a totally different goal. We have, we have a totally different incentive. We have a, a totally different mindset and loyalty and lifestyle. We have a totally different set of standards than the world around us has. And the reason for that is because we now have a different Lord. We have a different master. We have a different <laughs> king. We have a different direction. We have a different destination, heaven instead of hell. We have a different destiny, if you will, and eternal citizenship, which is in heaven, as, as we talked about last week. I do want to make one quick correction, if you will, um, quick correction or clarification regarding the illustration that I used last week of, of how the Amish are so different than us as they travel about locally, um, particularly when it comes to their tractors as their chosen mode of transportation. I said last week they don't take interstate trips. Well, they do take interstate trips, just obviously not on the tractors. So just clear that up. You may recall that last week I also mentioned how there's only one thing, one thing that will empower and enable a New Testament Christian to be able to maintain they're being so different and distinct from the world around them whenever sin and Satan and culture and peers come into the picture and try to get us to compromise our call and our commitment 
to holiness. There's only one thing that will help us to stand strong and, and to maintain that difference, that blood-bought difference. And that is by keeping our eyes and our mind focused upon what awaits us in heaven. That's exactly the first thing that Peter went on to emphasize in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. How if we just keep our eyes and our mind focused on our eternal salvation, as I called it last week, our, our salvation reservation, Peter talks about this reservation that is waiting for us in heaven. Last week, as I talked about that text, I also brought up another one that's where we will begin this morning. I briefly mentioned Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, wherein it will tell us that even Jesus Christ, even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that is how he endured his greatest struggle on the cross. That is how Jesus himself endured his worst struggle by keeping his eyes focused on what awaited him in heaven rather than that momentary struggle. And then Hebrews 12 goes on to say, hey, if you don't want to be weary and discouraged in your souls, you've got to do the same thing. Let's take a look at that text. This morning we're going to start in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 with a sequel to last Sunday's sermon. This morning's sequel is entitled Strangers and Aliens 2. Seeing the bigger picture. Seeing the bigger picture. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. Maintain that strangers and aliens difference. Maintain who you are. Endurance, not quitting, not giving up, not surrendering. How do we do that? Verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did he endure the cross? How did how, All of the things that we've talked about this morning and, and even this morning about when Jesus said, I thirst, as we gathered about the table, and we often focus on the bigger things and the, the beating and the scourging and, and all that Jesus took, and, and it kind of gave me a little thought provocation this morning. I guess I never really thought quite so deeply on his statement of I thirst as we discussed, and we've all been terribly hot and sweaty, sweaty and dying for a drink, and we, I'm sure, were never as thirsty as Jesus was at that point, so that his tongue Clove to the roof of his mouth, his saliva gone because of his blood loss. How, how did he possibly endure all of that? Well, Scripture tells us right here in Hebrews chapter 12. He endured the cross because he kept his eyes on the joy that was coming. That's how he did it. And, and Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us that in order to run our race with endurance, that's what we got to do too. <laughs> you know, I appreciate it again, the reading this morning, and my mind keeps going back to that. Jesus, we all know, was human like we are. He was 100% God, 100% human. We understand that. We can't always explain it, but we understand it. When Jesus was hungry, his belly growled. He got hungry like we do. He thirsted like we do. He, if, if Jesus ever was, was working in Joseph's carpenter shop and, and pounded his thumb and it broke open and bled. It hurt. He didn't just go, wow, I'm God. It, it didn't work that way. And, and we understand 
that. And so I would have to think it would have so often been so easy for Jesus in his earthly ministry to just compromise or call it quits. Wouldn't you think about some of the stuff he put up with? It would have been so easy to get frustrated and overwhelmed and just, just quit, to be tempted at least to quit. We know he was tempted in all things as we are. You know, when the going got too tough, when the disciples just wouldn't listen, when the pain got too terrible, or when his suffering got too unbearable, it would have been so easy to compromise or call it quits. But Jesus didn't. Why? How, how on earth did he keep going as a, a God-fearing, God-loving, all-forgiving, stranger and alien himself in a world so foreign to him, a world of sin and shame and temptation without ever once compromising his purity, without compromising his holiness, without compromising his obedience, without compromising his mission? How did he do it? Simple by keeping his mind fully focused on the far bigger and eternal picture, rather than on his own earthly comfort or his own earthly pleasure or his own earthly pain or his own earthly struggle or his own earthly temptation. Instead of focusing on that, he focused on the bigger picture. Just like here in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two, that's how instead of focusing in on, on the pain and the shame, he focused on the bigger picture, the joy that awaited him. And I want us to understand that Jesus had always done this. This wasn't a once in a lifetime thing for him. This was a way of life. I want us to take a look at how Jesus started right out this very same way. And, and, and this is so important because brethren, we all struggle. We all have our crosses to bear. Everybody in this room is probably dealing with something they wish they weren't. Life hurts, sin is real, Satan's real, pain is real. It's so important that, that we understand that in order not to give in to temptation and some of the things the world wants us to surrender, our, our holiness or our purity or our mindset or our, our Christianity too, in order to keep going, we've got to be like Jesus. And, and the Bible says, do what he did. Well, right from the very beginning, he kept his mind on the big picture, and that's how it helped him to get through these other things. Turn to me, if you would, please, in Luke chapter 2. He started it out that way. Luke chapter 2. Verses 41 through 49. It says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Verse 42 of, John, of Luke 2. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. So it was that after three days, I want you to think, if you've ever lost place of your child or your grandchild for three seconds in a store, I want you to think about the horror of that moment. I want you to think about losing your child or not knowing where your child, they turned around and they were gone. Three days, three days, <clears throat> Jesus wasn't with them, but they, they found him three days later. <clears throat> Verse 46, 
Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? <laughs> Moms, imagine yourself. Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Please notice. Notice, 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 notice. While they were concerned about the loss of their one child over a period of three days, Jesus himself, despite the pain and struggle that being separated from his family during this annual holiday season would cause, had his mind focused on the far bigger picture. They were concerned about one child for three days. Jesus was concerned about all mankind for all eternity and getting the mission going to save them. Jesus had his mind on the bigger picture, even though it caused pain and suffering, maybe even for him. Jesus started out his life with a bigger picture in mind. He started out his public ministry that way as an adult. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. In verse 16 of John 3, uh, not John 3, Matthew, we get so used to John 3.16, it kind of sticks in there. Matthew 3.16, that's what I want to say. <clears throat> Matthew 3.16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. How many of us have ever attempted to diet or to fast, and we've gone a few hours without food, maybe even a day, 40 days, a month and a third? I love when the Bible just simply says he was hungry. Yeah, I'm sure he was starving. Now the tempter came to him. Now when the tempter came to him, verse 3, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Man, that would have been so easy. If you could just go pop, and there it was. I mean, a full feast. I mean, you didn't have to do like Thanksgiving where, you know, there was so much preparation and food bought. I mean, Jesus could have just laid out the best feast ever laid out before men and just with a thought. His immediate need, he had to have been starving. His immediate need, his immediate pain, his immediate desire... Could have been answered like that, but notice that Jesus, in suffering and struggling, that pain, in suffering and struggling, that need or want or desire, that, that necessity, instead of giving in to that and giving in to Satan and letting Satan be his boss, he kept his eyes on the bigger picture and staying pure and holy instead. But he answered verse 4 and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He had his eyes on the big... He's not giving in to Satan no matter what. No matter how hard, no matter how hungry, no matter how much desire, he was not going to give in for the moment and, and lose all that he had with God. He just wasn't going to do it. He kept his mind on the bigger picture, that is obeying God. And as we... Read down through here, we know that the devil took him up, verse 5, 
into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Come on, Jesus, prove to the whole world who you are. Go ahead, jump. Could Jesus have thrown himself down and survived? He could have floated, he could have flown, he could have hung there, and he could have done anything he wanted to do. But, but notice that it's not about the momentary <coughs> moment of popularity or proving anything. He said, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. His mind was on the big picture. He was going to stay faithful to God no matter what. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. You can avoid the cross. Everything we talked about here this morning, Satan said, I'll give you the whole world if you just fall down. You haven't got to go through the cross is the implication. You haven't got to, to put up with all of this pain and suffering and agony. I'll give it all to you if you just bow down and worship me. How easy it would have been to give an end to temptation for that, for that escaping that pain and all. But Jesus had his eyes on the bigger picture. He wasn't going to disobey God. Your soul meant too much to him. His relationship with the Father meant too much to him. He wasn't throwing it away for a little earthly popularity or riches. Notice what he said. Away with you, Satan, for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The reason that Jesus did not fail or fall or give in to temptation, the reason that instead he maintained his pure, holy, stranger and alien status was because of instead of focusing on some momentary earthly need, want, or desire, he kept his mind on the far bigger eternal picture. And you know, he kept that out through his entire ministry. Turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. His whole ministry was like that. In Matthew chapter 16, we just read verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Lord said, I'm going to, oh, the pain, the struggle, yeah, I'm going up and I'm going to be delivered over and all these horrible things are going to happen. Peter, not wanting to lose his friend, his, his liege, his lord, the one he, he owed his loyalty to, said, this will never happen to you. But, but notice what Jesus said. Jesus turned, verse 21, and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. See, Satan was speaking through Peter. Peter only had in mind the things of man, the momentary. The momentary, don't, don't miss that. He only had in mind the earthly, momentary, physical thing that Jesus had described. But you see, Jesus had in mind the far bigger picture. All eternity depended on him doing this, and he wasn't going to lose sight of that. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. As we turn to John chapter 12, if you would please, for a couple of verses there, getting really, really close to the crucifixion. In John chapter 12, Verses 27 and 8, look what it says. John 12, 27 and 8. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. Jesus said, look, this is struggle, okay? My soul is troubled. I, I, I'm really hurt here. 
And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What do I do? Ask God to get me out of this? But look at his focus. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Don't, don't you love that? Don't, don't you love when he says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus looked at the whole bigger picture. He knew this was the very plan from before the foundation of the world, as we read about in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. He knew that was the plan that all the Old Testament prophets had spoken about. He knew that if, that if he did not die for the sins of the world, that God's entire plan would collapse. See, he had in mind the bigger picture. And that's how he endured. That's how he did the will of God. That's how he maintained his purity and his morality before God. Even as the cross loomed right over him. Look at Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Last chance, Jesus. Look at all the suffering you're going to have to go through. You can get out of this, Jesus. All you've got to do is speak up, Jesus. No, no. You see, there's this bigger picture. You can see this reflected in Matthew 26, 51 through 54. Look what it says. Suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This is when they come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that night before they crucified him the next day. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or don't you think that I can now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus said, I can fix this. <laughs> I got this. I could, I could stop this right here and now. Notice he could stop the pain. He could stop the suffering. He could stop everything that he was going to have to go through. But his focus, next verse, how then would the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? He kept his eyes on the Bible, on what the Bible said about him. He, tied it, he, he had it tied to the bigger picture. And so as we go back to Hebrews chapter 12, where we began, we find out not only in verses 1 through 3 that that's how Jesus managed to survive and to thrive in the worst of his trials was by keeping his mind focused exclusively on the scripture. But that's how we are to do so as well because Hebrews 12 and verse 3 tells us, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. <clears throat> Fix your eyes on Jesus who kept his eyes on the joy. And just like he got through his struggle, that's how you'll get through yours. Bible's an unspeakably beautiful book. Not only does God tell us what to do, but he gives us an example in this very same chapter of what not to do as well. You see, we have in Hebrews 12 also the example of one who did not keep the bigger picture in mind, one who instead focused in exclusively on his own immediate pain, his own immediate want, his own immediate need or, or desire, focused in only on that, that one momentary thing instead of keeping in mind the bigger picture. And it cost him joy and blessings beyond measure. Hebrews chapter 12, same chapter, look at verses 14 through 17. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, there it is again, without which no one will see the Lord. Those have to be kept. 
looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau, for a morsel of food, sold his birthright. You know the story. Esau's out hunting one day, comes in. His brother has got a stew there. And he says, I'm famished, give me some. This story, by the way, is found in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. And his brother says, I'll give you some if you give me your birthright. Now, birthright then was a big deal in those days, okay? There's a reason we always say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was meant to be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, because Esau was first, but he sold his birthright for a cup of soup. Really? Everything that went with it? He said, well, I'm starving, basically, if I can paraphrase, he says, well, I'm starving to death, so what, what good's my birthright to me? And he sold his birthright for a cup of soup. He, he, he got his belly full, and, and we all know that food doesn't last more than a few hours, and when that few hours was gone, the food was gone, and so was his birthright. He, he gave up his birthright, and, and I stop and think about how many Christians who for a moment's worth of release from suffering or for a moment's worth of temptation or pleasure or whatever, give up their home in heaven. Because they didn't keep their mind on the big picture. And it cost them both here on earth and for all eternity. And, and as, I, as I considered Esau, I thought, well, wait a minute, he's not the only one. Do you know how many others in Scripture followed that same path? Those in Scripture who, for a brief moment of physical pain or want or desire or temptation, failed to keep in mind the far bigger picture, the far bigger earthly and eternal picture, and it cost them so much. It cost them, in some cases, their eternal life. It cost them their joy for the rest of their life just because they didn't keep in mind the bigger picture. They didn't stay focused on heaven and what God wanted them to have and the heartache and the suffering and the struggle that that brought about was far worse than their original struggling or temptation that they had to deal with. For example, what about Adam and Eve? We know the story, Genesis 3, but, but think about this. When Satan says, you know, did God say that, that you will surely die? God did not say you shall surely die. And Eve looked at that tree. Now, now, keep in mind, when Eve looked at that tree and she saw that it was desirable for food, pleasant to the eyes, desire, remember that, right? Genesis 3, 1 through 6, right? Do you know what she had to do in order to focus on that one tree? She had to take her mind off all the other trees. If I'm going to focus on Eric Bond, I'm taking my eyes off of everybody else in the room. Right? What did he do to her? He got her not to look at the big picture. Brethren, they lived in paradise. There was no sin, there was no sickness, there was no death. They could eat of the fruit of any tree God had created. And I don't believe, hey, God does everything right. I don't think there was a piece of blemished fruit in the whole place, okay? God had made it, it was good, and it was perfect, and they had it all, and, and she had this, this beautiful relationship with her husband. She had this beautiful relationship with God. Everything was utopian and, and heavenly and awesome and, and, and great and, and all the other fruit and all the other food and everything that was going on, but Satan got her to look at that one little thing. Forget the big picture, that one little thing, and guess what? 
She ate. Sin, sickness, and death entered the world and they got kicked out of the garden. Why? Because she didn't keep in mind the big picture. What about the 12 spies in Numbers 13 and 14? When those 12 spies come back and they said, 10 of them said, not Joshua and Caleb, but the other 10 said, look, we, we can't inherit this land. Well, first off, God had told them he's going to give it to them, so that's a lack of faith. But, but think of those people. Think of the big picture that they lost sight of. Those people had just seen 10 plagues unleashed on Egypt, right? 10 incredible plagues. Nile turned into blood, the locusts, all of that, right? Darkness that you could basically, tangible darkness to light. Instead of those people, when the spies come back and said, oh, those people are too big for us and all that, and, and Joshua and Caleb stood up in Numbers 13, 14 and said, we can do this, God's with us. Those people lost sight of the bigger picture. They lost sight of all the plagues that God had just put the Egyptians through, but not them. How do you forget walking through the Red Sea on dry ground with walls of water? But they did. They had to have, because if they'd been focused on those things and all that God had done for them, and they had kept in mind the bigger picture of God, they'd have said, let's go, boys. But they didn't. They took the word of 10 faithless, deceptive men who were spreading them, and so instead of that generation becoming strangers and aliens in a land flowing with milk and honey, they became corpses and carcasses consumed in the wilderness. About David and Bathsheba, we know that story as well. David sees this beautiful woman who's another man's wife, he knows another man's wife, and calls into her. Later on, has her husband killed. Nathan the prophet comes to him in 2 Samuel 12, and I want you to listen to what Nathan the prophet said to him in 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 10. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. Hey David, you forget that? And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Hey David, you forget that? I'm adding that phrase, by the way. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. Hey David, you forget that? And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Hey David, did you forget that? Verse 9, I'm sorry, continuing verse 8. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. David had it made. God said, I gave you this, I gave you this nation, I gave you this nation, I gave you all this stuff. And, and David, if that had been too little, all I had to do was ask for more, David. But you see, David lost sight of all of that. He lost sight of the big picture because Nathan's having to remind him. Verse 9, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, said God, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David, in that moment, that, that moment of lust, that moment of desire, that moment of temptation, forgot all that God had given him, all that God was willing to give him because he was willing to throw that all away. For that one, that, that one couple of hours worth of what he considered earthly need, he was willing to throw all that other stuff away. And Nathan comes to him and says, hey, God, God gave you all this stuff, and God given you so much more, all you had to do was ask. And my, and my thought, David, you look at her, and, and really, that's, that's, you're willing to throw all of that? And, and indeed, we know from the next five chapters in that book that David's house suffered within his own family, the sword, and, and so many horrible things. 
Speaking of not keeping your mind on the big picture, what about Judas Iscariot? Let's go to the New Testament. Do you know that Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 apostles whom Jesus gave, quote, power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease, according to Matthew 10, 1 through 4. Matthew 10, 1 through 4, Judas Iscariot was given the power to drive out demons and heal people. He was one of the 12 apostles, right? You imagine having that power. And, and think of all of the things that he saw and experienced with Jesus, the raising of the dead. And, and he heard the same lessons the rest of them heard. It wasn't like Judas was going around, going, hmm, 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 I can't hear you. That's not what was going on when Jesus was teaching. He heard the same lessons the rest of them heard. He had the same rights and privileges and experience as the other 11 whose names were written in heaven as God's holy apostles. But in one, one, just one moment of fiery emotion and anger, one moment, one critical, defiant, and life-defining moment of anger and disagreement, he lost sight of all of the rest of that stuff. All that he had seen and known and learned and experienced in the past with Jesus as a part of that group, he did not keep that in mind because if he kept that in mind and all that Jesus was and was capable of, he never would have sold him out. But that one moment of disagreement over finances, if you will, that we've discussed before, and in that one moment, not keeping in mind the big picture, Judas made one final, tragic, fatal, eternity-determining decision to betray the Lord and his people. And he paid the ultimate earthly and eternal price, Matthew 26, 20 through 25, and 27, 3 through 5. You see, instead of acting like a stranger and alien here, Judas acted and reacted and interacted just like the rest of the world with a me-first mentality who didn't know God, and so he will share their fate. On the other hand, we thank God for those apostles who did understand, those apostles who, who unlike Judas, kept in mind the big picture. And last week we read some passages from Paul, and I'm not going back over those, but it wasn't only Paul that, that continued with this because we are, we are bought with the blood of Christ, we are, we are so much different and moral and, and all of those things. We, we have to be, and, and we can't give up being those strangers and aliens. You know, Peter didn't only talk about that in his first epistle, but what I want to do with the time that we have left is look at how that same idea came through in his second epistle as well. Turn to me to Second Peter, would you please? And again, if you didn't hear last week's lesson or you'd like to, it's posted on the church's website on the live stream. It's also up on godswordistruth.org, just, uh, just the audio. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter starts out pretty much the same way he did in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he talked about their eternal salvation and keeping their eyes on their eternal salvation reservation. And he said that that's what would carry them through their trials and, and their temptations. He said that's, how, that's what will carry you without you compromising or surrendering your strangers and aliens' convictions. Just keep your eyes on heaven. And you can see chapter 1 of 1 Peter unfolds that way. But... Here in 2 Peter chapter 1, 
His focus is the same thing. The bigger picture. The bigger picture. Just like it was in 1 Peter 1. The bigger picture that you've got to keep in mind. What will enable you to go through your trials and all of that. It is this, it is this bigger picture that will carry you through all of your temptations and trials without compromise and bring you out on the other end as a still faithful, still pure and holy, still heaven-bound stranger and alien. What is that? Here we go. Verse 2, chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. If I may shorten that up just a little. He said, okay, how you're going to be saved. God has given you everything that you need to know and it's found in the knowledge of him. So then he goes on in verses 5 through 11 and says, so keep digging into it. Keep getting into it. Keep your, if I may, keep your eyes focused on what God said in his word. Keep your, keep your focus on what's awaiting you. Study and, and add these Christian virtues and continue to grow in your faith and your knowledge. And he says, God's given us all these things. Get in there and dig them out because that is the only thing that will make your entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, guaranteed, verse 10 and 11. Because he understood that that's where our focus needed to be, was on the big picture of what we've got that will help us stay away from the lust of the world. He said in verses 12 through 14, 12 through 15, I'm gonna tell you again and again and again, and oh, by the way, I'm gonna make sure that after I die, you've got a written reminder as well, or a reminder. He says then, the reason this is so important to study these things and to grow and to keep our eyes on God that way, verses 16 through 21 of chapter 1, is because this all came from God. In chapter 2, he reminds us of the big picture. Chapter 2, if I may really shorten it up, he said, look, there's always been false teachers amongst God's people. That's the big picture. He takes you way back. He said, it's always been that way. You can read it for yourself in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, or chapter 2, verse 1 through 22. He said, it's always been false teachers, and it's always going to be. Those false teachers are going to try to get you to compromise, and, and they're always there, and they're always seeking to gain a foothold, and it's always going to be that way. But he says at the very end of chapter 2, if you do go back into the world and you fall for it, going to be worse than if you'd never started down this road in the first place. That's chapter 2. Keep your mind on the bigger picture. Finally, chapter 3. You want to These are the last recorded words we have of the Apostle Peter, and I want you to notice how it's all about the big picture. Always. Always. Chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. He's reminding them again that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Savior, Lord and Savior. Wow, he's taking them way back to the Old Testament prophets. Yep. Some of those Old Testament prophets that wrote a thousand years ago. Yep. Big picture. Knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now if I slow down, 
just seek to explain that a little bit. He said, hey, these people are saying, hey, we can live any way we want to, according to lust, desires, not let that worry us. We can just go do whatever we want to do. He said, they've forgotten something. They've forgotten the big picture. They've forgotten how, from the very beginning, God's word is what created the earth. It's what kept life on this planet during the flood. And oh, by the way, it's going to be that same word that's going to end it all. That, that's a pretty broad expanse, isn't it? From, from the creation of the earth up until the fiery end of it all. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty big picture, right? That's exactly what Peter says. There's a big picture that those people are missing. There is a huge picture here that you cannot afford to forget. You have got to stay in touch with the big picture. He then goes on to say that the Lord's timing sense and ours is different, verses 8 through 9. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come, will come. Notice, it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter if they forget the big picture. The day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, here it comes, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Watch this. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering or patience of our Lord is salvation. Take that whole thing and get a hold of it. Every earthly temptation, everything we think we need on this earth and got to have right this minute, even if it's not in line with God's word, even if it causes us to compromise our holiness, our purity, our convictions as strangers and aliens, even if it means living like the rest of the world, all of those things are not going to matter when this earth is burned up. Therefore, he says, what kind of people ought you to be knowing that those can't be our focus? knowing that those can't take priority, knowing that those are pointless, worthless things that will only lead us astray. He says, therefore, knowing this, what kind of people ought you to be? Maintain your holiness, maintain your purity, maintain this idea of the big picture because that's what will help you to continue as a stranger and alien. He closes out by telling us in verse 18, we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way that you and I are going to live as God called us to live, once we've been washed by the blood, once we've been saved, once we've taken advantage of that forgiveness, it, it's a hard road sometimes. The world and society's got some weird ideas today. People that are not God's people got some weird ideas today, and, and we stand out as different when we say, well, that ain't right. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to indulge in that. I'm not going to partake of that. I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to do that. And as we discussed before in 1 Peter 4, they think that we're really strange and different, and sometimes they malign us. Life's hard, especially on our young people. But the only way that we're going to stay that way, once we've been bought by that blood, is to stay in the word, keep our mind on the bigger picture, 
and not let Satan deceive us into a momentary answer to temptation or, or want or desire or alleviation of pain, whatever it may be, not letting him take us away. Keep your mind on the big picture. That was how Peter said in both his epistles, we can remain strangers and aliens. This walk begins when we are washed in the blood. A new beginning that sets us apart. A new beginning that says I'm different. I'm not going to serve the same master. I'm not going to serve sin. I'm not going to serve self. I'm going to serve Jesus. That I need my sins washed away. And the Bible tells us the only way that happens is when we by faith accept his grace by being forgiven the way he said to do it. By being obedient to him in the waters of Christian baptism. That's how we become a stranger and alien when we rise to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 5. My question for you this morning is, have you done that? Not baptism just for any reason, but baptism for the one biblical reason, for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2 and verse 38, Acts 22 and verse 16. Have you done that? Because at that moment you are set free from your sins and you rise to walk as a stranger and alien. You no longer serve the same king and Lord. If you've not done that, we'd love to baptize you into Christ this morning or have a Bible study with you about that. See what God says, not what Doug says, or your former preacher, or whatever. Not that, but what God says. Maybe you're somebody who's done that this morning, and you're sitting here listening to this lesson. You say, you know what? When I go into a store, or I go to school, or I go to work, I don't stand out as any different. I dress the same, talk the same, behave the same, act the same, and I know that ain't right. But boy, it's hard, and I need the prayers of the church to help me be stronger, to stand out as a stranger and alien. We'd love to pray for you and help you with that because that's God's desire for you. If any of those are your needs this morning, please make your way to the front as we stand and sing.